0: The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and back roads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Glad you are safe, glad you are with us. And today we are going to be talking to a renowned Elvis
1: expert right after this. Whether your perfect winter wonderland is on snow-covered Mount Hood or in a cozy, warm boutique winery or craft brewery, Mount Hood Territory is the place for your next winter stay. Hit the ski slopes midweek for fewer crowds and lift lines. Learn a new skill on a guided snowmobiling snowshoe or Nordic ski tour. Fuel up and support local at restaurants along Highway 26, brimming with chill mountain vibes. Warm up from the inside in Mount Hood Territory's craft breweries, cideries, and distilleries. And visit its boutique wineries for an intimate and casual experience during cellar season. Plan your trip at mounthoodterritorycom
0: slash winter. You can enter the American Road Monumental Moments Photo Contest now through January 14, 2023. Share your entries on social media with the hashtag ARMag 20 years. That's armag two-zero years, and we may even share your post on our pages, but don't forget to enter the contest for your chance to win. First place wins a $500 gift card and two nights at the Inn on the Square in Greenwood, South Carolina, a total prize worth $750. We want to give special thanks to our Monumental Moments Photo Contest sponsors, Oregon's Mount Hood Territory, the city of West Wendover, Nevada, and the Old 96 District Tourism Commission in South Carolina. Monumental Moments Photo Contest. Enter now.
2: Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days. And I want to bring attention to a life-saving product called Alert Drops. Drowsy driving... Is one of the most catastrophic problems in America, and alert drops will stop it. Kids studying in college, drinking too much caffeine, overloading on these energy drinks, they end up in the hospital. Alert drops will stop it. What is alert drops? Alert drops is a simple spray on the tongue made out of citric acid, sour lemon, and water, co-created with my uncle, Dr. Henry Heimlich, creator of the Heimlich Maneuver, who said, Anson, alert drops will save more lives than the Maneuver. Whether you are driving, whether you're studying, whether you're just a tired mom, whenever you need to be alert, get Alert Drops. A simple spray on the tongue, nothing in your system, and you're naturally awake, naturally alert. It's scientifically proven. It's doctor approved. Again, it's natural. It's been honored by the United States Congress. Go to alertdrops.com. Very important. Go to alertdrops.com and stay safe.
0: Adventure. History and beauty all await you on the Natchez Parkway, a national scenic byway and national park. This 444-mile drive takes you through some of the country's most stunning landscapes, while also allowing you access to exciting communities along the way. From Natchez, Mississippi to Nashville, Tennessee, we invite you to explore the trace and discover America. Plan your trip at scenictrace.com. That's scenictrace.com. Welcome back to American Road Trip Talk. Before we bring on a renowned Elvis expert named Corey Cooper, who is a wonderful, wonderful font of knowledge concerning all things Elvis, I do want to say hello to Suzanne Mitchell, my broadcast partner, heard with me on 1150 KKNW Seattle. And she is the lady whom I escorted through the doors of Graceland. What a time we had, Suzanne.
3: Oh, we had a wonderful time, and I'm happy to talk about it today with somebody as knowledgeable as Corey Cooper and you. We went through and were quite amazed by what we saw at Graceland. And when we left there, we went to Tupelo and saw the birthplace of Elvis. So, the same day. The same day. So you and I have a lot of, of Elvis experience and that packed into that one day. But then we have Corey Cooper, who knows a whole lot more than we do about the man.
0: You can't stump the guy, Corey Cooper. Extraordinary. He is a renowned Elvis Presley historian. Corey Cooper is a noted authority on the life and music of Elvis Presley. He regularly contributes to books, radio shows, movies, and television projects. Corey has appeared on numerous nationally syndicated radio programs across the United States and Canada. In addition, Corey has been a contributor to internet and local radio shows as well as for a variety of elvis publications and he's been a contributor to e entertainment online as a sought out authority on all things elvis Corey cooper draws from his vast knowledge and his deep ties to others in the elvis world included among his contacts are authors band members performers, and members of the Memphis Mafia, the close group of bodyguards, friends, and employees that worked with and protected Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, the king of Elvis knowledge. I'm talking about Corey Cooper. We're glad to have with us. Corey, welcome to Trip Talk.
1: Gary, Suzanne, as always, great to be on with you guys. And you know, you've jinxed me now. Uh I'll probably be stumped now during the show since you've made (laughs) such a fantastic introduction for me
0: it's not likely that we will stump you. We just keep going to the well, and you provide us with so many insights into all things Elvis. You know, I should start, Corey, by asking you, and I do want to get into your own connection to Elvis and what he means to you, but before we do that, I'd like to ask you about the people who were in the Memphis Mafia. Here, we've just begun 2020. Are are there many of those ladies and gentlemen still around?
1: Well, sadly, a lot of those people are not with us anymore. Um, The last Four or five years, we've seen so many of them pass away, and a lot of them being the ones that a lot of us have known in the public consciousness over the years, like Joe Esposito and Sonny and Red West. And, uh, you know, sadly, they're not with us anymore. And a lot of those first hand accounts and those historic finds and little tidbits of knowledge are now lost with them. But thankfully, they were out there a lot over the years to, uh, be able
3: to share those stories. Corey, I'm not going to try and stump you, but I do actually have a question I'd like to know. Uh, We've been to Graceland, and actually we did the tour backwards because we were coming from the north, and we started in Memphis, Tennessee, and spent uh, quite a few hours at Graceland, and then we got in our car and drove to Tupelo, Mississippi because we were headed in that direction to head home. So we kind of saw his life backwards. But my question for you is... At what point did he leave and not return to Tupelo? Was it when he went into the Army, or was it before then or after then? Do you know how much time he spent in Tupelo before he was kind of finished with it?
1: Well, Elvis was about 13 when they left Tupelo in 1948 and went to Memphis. His family went to Memphis for more job opportunities than what was offered them in Tupelo. So Elvis had his first 13 years in Tupelo, and then basically the rest of his life there at Graceland. In Memphis. Of course, Elvis had other homes in Southern California and a couple of homes over the years in Palm Springs, but his main base was there in Memphis with Graceland.
0: When you go to Tupelo to his birthplace, which is kind of an Elvis historical tableau, because there's the home where he was brought as a baby. I don't know if he was born in the house or not, frankly, but it was his boyhood home for sure. And then they moved the church in there. So on the same ground, you have the church where he first went to school got the Christian upbringing, heard and sang gospel music, it's right there. You go to one place and you see both, and there's an interesting representation of his life and a very beautiful statue of him as a young lad with a guitar. You go there, you really just absorb what it meant for Elvis to grow up in Tupelo, Mississippi. And as a matter of fact, Corey, there I recall in one of the storyboards there, I remember reading a piece of an interview that Elvis did, and the interviewer asked him what it was like growing up in Tupelo before they went to Memphis. And Elvis responded, "We were broke, man, just broke." So a lot of the move from Tupelo uh, and the last train to Memphis. You often know, get the name of a the title of a biography about Elvis. It seems that Elvis's father had to make a decision about how he was going to allow his family to survive. Some of the ways he devised were a little on the wrong side of the law, as a matter of fact, but always with love and concern for his family. So when we say that Elvis grew up from nothing, from the dirt in the Delta in Mississippi, that's true in every sense, isn't it?
1: Oh, it absolutely is. And it's another fantastic example of Elvis was that American dream. And so Americana, you know, grows up by humble means. So, you know, dirt poor, you know, living in a two-room tiny little shotgun house to now he's in Graceland with an over a 10,000 square foot colonial style mansion. You know, I mean, it's just another thing that signifies that success story, you know, and then along with everything else that was Elvis. I mean, it just, it seems like such a fitting, perfect story of how it all worked out.
0: Absolutely true. And Corey, this gives me the perfect opening to offer you the chance to say you've made the pilgrimage to Graceland, as Suzanne and I have, more of a pilgrimage for you even than for us. We enjoy Elvis, but you live in the Elvis oeuvre, you might say, the realm of Elvis, and you have become such an expert. When you went to Graceland, what was it like for you to go through those gates, to be where Elvis lived, the home? of Elvis Presley, given your strong attraction to the man, his music, and his legacy?
1: Well, the first thing that, that strikes you is that you certainly wish you had a time machine, because the entire time, I don't know for for both of you, but it probably was, I kept trying to, you know, picture Elvis being here, picture Elvis being there, having a great time, playing music, having the family get together, driving through the gates in one of his cars, whether it's a Stutz or a Cadillac, and, you know, and you picture that. And then you get to the home. And it's a weird dichotomy because you walk through those doors and you're excited to be there, and then you almost feel like you're intruding in a weird way, like you almost shouldn't be there, like you're invisible or a fly on the wall and looking at something you probably shouldn't be looking at, but you're so glad you're there to see it. But it's just a you know, anybody, whether you're not a big Elvis fan or... You know, a casual fan or the huge fan, you should at least once in your lifetime make that pilgrimage because it really is a special place to go to. And I think a lot of people really understand the man more after they've been there.
3: You know, I agree with you feeling like I was intruding a little bit, and they did uh, prevent us from going to the second floor. They said that the second floor was his personal space, and so there, there was no touring in the in the. The upper bedrooms, there is plenty to see on the first floor and in the outbuildings and uh, so much to see that you didn't need it. But there was that sense of reverence and that even after his passing, he was entitled to a little privacy. And I I didn't have any objection to that. I was quite okay with it. And um, did you have that same experience about it's okay not to look at, you know, where he died upstairs?
1: Sure. I mean, there's one part of you, of course, that just wants to go rogue and run up the stairs. But then, of course, you know, you're going to get thrown out and that's not going to enhance your experience. But, you know, I'm glad that they have left it like that to have a little bit of that mystery saved because so much is known about Elvis. So I'm glad that they have sectioned that off to where you're not able to go up there because there still needs to be that mystery and there needs to be that tribute to him and that respect for him that that was his private sanctuary up there. So I'm glad that it is the way that it is.
0: If My memory serves, and Suzanne and I were there in 2013, the only two people who are allowed access upstairs are Elvis's ex-wife, Priscilla Presley, and daughter, Lisa Marie.
1: Uh, well, for the most part, I mean, officially, I mean, there have been over time, you know, there's certain inspections, there's certain cleaning crews, there's been times when the fire de- Memphis Fire Department had to been up there to check things out. So, I mean, there has been a very small handful of a handful of other individuals that have been up there. But yes, for the most part, you're just not going to get up there.
0: Let's continue talking about Graceland. Of course, we're celebrating Elvis. What was it about the swimming pool and then the gravesite of Elvis that grabbed you? Because I can tell you, Corey. I'll just uh, indicate for my part in it. I was rather embarrassed, a little sheepish, that my camera batteries ran out. And I was right there at Elvis's gravesite looking at his headstone. I thought, oh, sheesh, I don't want to just change batteries here like I'm at Disneyland or something. So I went off to the side there about, you know, maybe 100 feet away. I changed the batteries and then I came back. There's a feeling of wanting to be reverent toward his memory and certainly respectful when you are there. And it's set in such a lovely way as to indicate that you really are visiting visiting Elvis and paying respects at his home, right out there by the pool.
1: Well, absolutely, and how fitting. I mean, where else, you know, should Elvis be? Of course, you know, he should be right at Graceland. So it's fitting that he's there. And the whole meditation garden, that whole area, and everything maybe a little unknown fact to a lot of people, is that that was all designed by a family member of Marty Lacker. Now, Marty Lacker was one of the original Memphis Mafia members that was with Elvis for years. And that was all designed that went through because of the family of of
3: Marty Lacker. You know, we're we're talking about uh, Elvis being right at Graceland, which is so fitting. But my understanding was, is that his body was moved, and so was his mother's. So those were not original burial sites. Those were um, designated later on to be part of Graceland. But that's not where he was originally buried, was he?
1: No, originally for the first six weeks after Elvis passed away, he was at uh, forest hill cemetery a couple of miles away from graceland and he was in a mausoleum um there was a couple incidents that happened one's been kind of overblown and and a little bit of uh, difference on the story over the years of what happened but uh as, as the story goes there was a few guys that came in one night and went tempted to break into the mausoleum to steal elvis um the, the couple problems with that story is yeah were they on the property yes but did they have the right tools to do that? No. And they were also in a sedan. So I don't know how they were going to steal Elvis's casket in a sedan, because it certainly wasn't going to be in the trunk. But all that said and done, whether that was as a ploy to be able to show Shelby County that they needed to move Elvis to Graceland for more secure means, whether that was true or not, that's what ended up happening. So when they moved Elvis to Graceland, they also moved his mother, Gladys, as well. And now, if you go there, obviously, you see that Elvis' grandma, Dodger, is there, and Elvis' father, Vernon, is there. And then there is a marker for his stillborn twin, Jesse Geer.
0: Specifically speaking of Vernon Presley, Elvis' father, it's funny how you forget things, but I believe that Vern Presley did not. Survive Elvis for very long. I mean, he had to bury his son. That must have been extraordinarily difficult. But didn't he die about three years after?
1: It was about two years. Elvis passed away in August of '77, and Vernon passed away in June of '79.
0: Okay, so uh, there, uh, you know, I keep thinking about Vernon Presley, and I, as much as he loved his son, and would be so painful to die there, approximately two years afterward. There's a certain sweet relief you can. T- taken that because carrying the memory of Elvis and for, to know that his son passed away at age 42, that would be exceptionally difficult. I've always felt for the man, though I never met either one of them.
1: Well, and, and sadly Vernon, you know, he passed away at the age of 63 and he'd had for years uh, a host of health problems, uh, a lot of cardiac problems and things like that. And he was, he was pretty frail the last two or three years before Elvis passed away. So, um, you know, and then after that, you know, Elvis going and his world's gone. So you can see that, uh, you know, the poor guy just was going through a lot. So I, I understand what you're saying, Gary.
3: Was there anything that really surprised you when you went uh, to Graceland in particular?
1: That um, it wasn't as big as I pictured that it might be. I mean, it's by no means a small home. But it is certainly not like some of these modern-day celebrity homes that you see that are, you know, 50,000 square feet with a 30-car garage and 100 acres of land. I mean, it's nothing like that at all. In fact, originally when Elvis bought the property, it was a lot bigger than it is today. But Elvis being Elvis said, look, I don't need this much property. Uh, You know, let's sell some of it off and let people build their homes around here. And so that's what they did. So now you're only seeing about... 14 acres of land when it used to be around 20.
3: And there were b- both businesses and other homes in close proximity to Graceland. It, it was not surrounded by a lot of land, it's surrounded by the city.
1: Well, yeah, and what's, you know, when you see it now, it's kind of funny and and there's a lot of there's a lot of neat stories about the homes that were built on outside the fence around the back and the side of Graceland because Elvis sometimes when he was there would just cruise down to a neighbor's house and go over the fence or walk around and just walk in and sit down and say hi to his neighbors and have breakfast and hang out with them.
0: And this is Elvis Presley coming over for a cup of sugar. <laughs> that is incredible. <laughs> yeah. I recall getting
1: up, getting your paper on a Sunday morning and hanging out, having breakfast, and all of a sudden Elvis walks in and sits down and has breakfast with you.
0: Cup of coffee, Kang. <laughs> That's incredible. I believe that Elvis also had an uncle who really liked to ride around on tractors, when we went there, we we saw a brief story indicating that I believe it was an uncle that enjoyed that, and Elvis had the land at the time, and so he would let his uncle go out on a tractor and ride around this this rolling
1: land oh, yeah, good old, beyond good his old house. Uncle well, and another thing that Elvis used to do on that land, it always makes me laugh, especially this time of year when it's winter, is that Elvis had snowmobiles, of course, that they would use around the grounds of Graceland at winter time. But then in the summertime, he also had them retrofitted so he could use them on summer dry grass land in the summertime as well.
0: I didn't know that. See, he was in Venue. What great energy he had. You know, Corey, when I think about Graceland to visit, and this is by way of saying it, everybody, if you, if you care a whit about Elvis Presley, go to Graceland. It's a pilgrimage, believe me. What an extraordinary place to visit. Corey, when you went, do you recall what specific examples Exhibit or exhibits were there because when Suzanne and I went back in 2013, across the road from the Graceland mansion, we saw a car collection, including the car, the last car that Elvis drove through the gates the morning that he died. And there was a car donated, a very sleek black sedan. I don't know if it was a Mercedes or not, but at any rate, Priscilla Presley donated that to the exhibit. And then you could go way out back and walk through Elvis's one of Elvis's airplanes. That was extraordinary in its own right. So there are other things you, that you can see representing Elvis, part of his physical legacy when you go to Graceland.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, the first time I ever went there was was in April of 1988. And, of course, the tour was certainly much different then than it is now. Uh, the, like the the cars that you're talking about, like the Stutz, Blackhawks, and some of the motorcycles and his three-wheeled vehicles, things like that, were actually under the patio behind Graceland at the time. They weren't across the street. Um, The tour was much different. It was actually done with a tour guide. Now I believe they still have it uh, as an electronic tour. Uh, The racquetball building that Elvis had built uh, was still just as the racquetball court. Uh, Now it's all filled with a lot of Elvis's uh, costumes and jumpsuits and and awards and trophies and gold records. And That was certainly not like that when I first went there as well.
3: How many times have you been there, Corey? Do you know?
1: Three times. Three. I've been there. okay. My first time in 88, I went once for the birthday celebration, and then I went there for Elvis week as well. So I wanted to get the full gamut of what it's like on all the different types of crowds. And, and it's been a unique and a fun experience each time. Um, Memphis in August is probably not the greatest fun for me weather-wise, because I live here in the, in the high desert with no humidity, and Memphis is a little bit humid, but it was still fun because there's such a different array of events that go on.
0: One of the things I wanted to be sure to mention was Elvis's generosity in two ways in particular. If you go through the exhibits, and they put them all in a central building so you can walk through because there's too much stuff to just have it clutter up the house. If you really want to fully appreciate Elvis's life and, as I say, his generosity, you can go into a museum piece there at Graceland. And I remember the wall of checks. If you were a charitable organization and you reached out to Elvis Presley, it was pretty sure that you were going to get a check for $1,000. And here are all these canceled checks that were donated back to Graceland. $1,000 here, $1,000 there. Any charitable organization that seemed to reach out to him got their $1,000, and I just looked at that, and I thought, that's a heck of a lot of money, and it probably is only a patch on the kind of generosity that he displayed. And when he he did... Yes, go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say, Gary, just in Memphis alone, every year Elvis donated to over 50 charities, and that's just in Memphis. It was amazing, the stuff that he did. You know, even... Even as far back, you know, in, in 1964, Elvis purchased FDR's presidential yacht. And he bought it for $55,000, and then a couple weeks later, he donated it to St. Jude's Hospital uh, for Children's Research that Danny Thomas had started. And that was just kind of the way Elvis was. You know, with the, the USS Arizona Memorial in Pearl Harbor, that was not being finished because the State Parks Department didn't have the money to do it. So who came through? Elvis. And there's all these kind of fantastic stories like that with his generosity and all doing such just because he wanted to do it. He didn't need the publicity. He just really, truly wanted to give back.
0: And so if you were walking around in a car lot, maybe at night checking out the Cadillacs and a fancy car rolled up, maybe a limo, maybe a, a souped up car, something very impressive, out steps the king of rock and roll. Elvis approaches you and asks you how you like this particular car. And it's a Cadillac. Back at your dream car. Often, what would happen, Corey?
1: Well, often he'd say, well, if you like that one, here it is. And he would add that on the old purchase order. You know, and there's a famous story of him doing that with one, and there was a lady looking at a Cadillac, and, and Elvis told her, he goes, well, he goes, you can't have that one, I've already bought it, but you can have any other one you want. And then <laughs> he couldn't believe it. He buys her the Cadillac, then he turns around and gives her a check for $500 because he says you can't have a brand-new Cadillac without a new wardrobe.
0: Oh, my. I hadn't heard that story before. That's incredible. This was his spontaneous generosity. I mean, that's coming from a wellspring in the heart. That that just makes you love him all the more.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, you, and there's even footage of numerous different concerts where Elvis just sees a fan and just takes a ring off his finger and walks over and hands it to him.
0: We have a couple of minutes left, Corey. I wanted to ask you about, and I know Joe Esposito was instrumental in the smooth running of his his residencys in Las Vegas. But if you go to Las Vegas and you want to go to the Elvis sites, are there any because Vegas gives itself a facelift about every 10 years whether it needs it or not. There so if you want to go to the Elvis sites, what remains of his legacy in Las Vegas?
1: Well, the main one that's going to stick out that is still there is the old site of the International Hotel which later became the Las Vegas Hilton, which is now I believe called the Westgate. And of course that's where Elvis made his comeback in 1969 and played over 600 shows there all the way through December of 1976. And that was the only place Elvis was contracted to actually perform at other than when he was at the New Frontier in 1956. And uh, But that was it. You know, There's really not too much left anymore of old Elvis sites or old haunts and restaurants where he used to go to. And uh, I mean, gosh, we got to think. I mean, it's been 42 years since the man passed away. And so much has changed. But they still have the, the, the showroom there at the Westgate is still there. Of course, the seats are different and it's rearranged, but that stage is still there and the showroom is still there. There's an Elvis statue that commemorates his performances there. And uh, you still get the feeling of Elvis being there. you got to think he spent two months
0: a year there for seven years. Yes, he did. And people who would go on to their own successful careers remember the kindness of Elvis when they were in Las Vegas. His advice seemed to be pretty much the same with everybody, which was, particularly the female entertainers, don't don't get caught here. He told uh, Cassandra Peterson, who would become famous later on as Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, he said to her, don't become the oldest showgirl in Las Vegas. And he would have this kind of avuncular concern for people so as to steer them out of trouble because Las Vegas, crowded as it is, can be a very lonely and even desolate place.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely that's why sometimes when Elvis went to the area where I'm at, you know, the Lake Tahoe area, he loved to go there because the showroom was a little smaller, a little bit more intimate, and a different kind of scenery. And it was more laid back, not as chaotic as Las Vegas. And so Elvis loved his time in this area
0: and I guess I should add in the last 30 seconds or so that he is much loved about everywhere, but also in Hawaii, particularly. People there, they put on Elvis, many impersonators, which you see all the time in Las Vegas and elsewhere, but in Hawaii, there is that culture of Elvis love and and memories of Elvis making his movies in Hawaii.
1: Absolutely. They're one of his most famous and beloved places to vacation, and of course, the home of the Live from Hawaii, Aloha from Hawaii show, beamed across, you know, to one point five million people in 1973. I mean, a feat that had never been done at the time. So Elvis has a special place in Hawaii as well.
0: And in our hearts, always get to Graceland, get to Tupelo. You can do it in the same day. You'll never forget the trip, the pilgrimage, as we say. Corey Cooper, thanks so much for joining us today. We hope we catch you down the road somewhere. Thank
1: you, Gary. Thank you, Suzanne.
0: We'll be right back. You've probably heard of Fargo, North Dakota, but we'll bet it's different from what you expected. Add Fargo to your bucket list this fall and find bold autumn colors along the Red River of the North, cow print, and Mario Brothers themed murals, the world's largest dilly bar, and of course, the nicest people you've ever met. Experience North, that is North of Normal. It's a small southern town built on equestrian traditions, sporting fun, and outdoor pursuits. Located in western South Carolina, just 20 miles from the Georgia state line, Aiken has many unique activities to cater to each kind of visitor's needs. Welcome to Aiken, South Carolina, and welcome to the Sporting South. Tell your friends about Alternative Talk 1150. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning into American Road Trip Talk. Along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co founders of American Road Magazine, we remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com, to preview the current issue of American Road Magazine. Until next week, drive safely and dream well.